Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 190, recorded on May 21st, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. Google I.O. was this week, and there were two announcements in particular we thought you might be interested in. First up is Chrome OS's Linux app support finally leaving beta with the release of Chrome OS 91. Google's been adding a lot of new features during the beta, enabling things like GPU acceleration and better support for USB drives. We learned about this exciting status change at the end of the Chrome OS keynote at Google I.O. this week. Now back to Emily for a quick update on Linux before we wrap up. Thanks, Sanjay. Regarding developing on Chromebooks, I am really pleased to announce that the Linux development environment is going to be out of beta in our next release. There have been a lot of updates over the last year, including a new terminal app, better USB support, configurable port forwarding, and a whole lot of work on performance and stability. One nice improvement is that now, when you install a Chrome OS update, your Linux container is updated at the same time. Before you had to wait three, five, or up to 15 minutes for it to update independently after an OS update. No longer. This is a nice example of the increasing polish happening with Linux on Chrome OS. Linux and developing right on a Chromebook is one of my favorite features, so I love that the integration is getting better and better. A deeper dive into many of the topics we have touched on today, including Linux, optimizing Android apps, building PWAs, as well as many more all about developing for and on Chrome OS can be found at chromeos.dev. With that, I would like to thank you for your continued enthusiasm for our awesome operating system over the last 10 years. And I hope you will be right there with us for the next 10. Alongside that Linux support, Google also announced that it would bring Android 11 to Chromebooks. You know, technically, that update's already started with Chrome OS 90 for some select Chromebooks, and it will just come with a whole new host of features, including increased optimization of Android apps and a new dark theme. In fact, a big focus of Google I.O. this week was getting Android apps ready for bigger screens. The second announcement out of I.O. we thought you should know about is some good news for the likes of F-Droid. Android 12 will finally let alternative app stores update their apps on their own. We got the first hints of this back in September, but now we're seeing signs in code that actually enable the support. Google has updated Android's package installer session params class with a new method called set require user action. Now, that little bit of magic there indicates whether or not the user action will be required before an app install is allowed. And assuming the app in question meets Google's requirements, user action won't be needed for an app installation or update. So when an app that has met the requirements tries to initiate an installation and it uses this new API, it'll be able to update without the user being involved. That's pretty slick. Our next story makes you wonder what's in store for desktop Linux because Red Hat has opened several job positions this week that are focused around the desktop graphics stack. A couple of the positions are focusing on upstream drivers for open source code around Intel, AMD, and NVIDIA. And outside of those two graphics engineer positions, 
Red Hat is also hiring a software engineer for the graphics team to be based out of the Czech Republic. And then rounding out all of that is another opening on their Linux automotive team. So we'll have links to the job positions and Christian's blog post that goes through all the details in the show notes. At the end of 2019, the developer of Cups, a common Unix printing service for Linux and Mac OS, Mike Sweet, left Apple. Following that, it was very noticeable that public development of the project seemed to have come to a halt. But now, there is a major development. Seemingly confirming their intent to no longer develop the subsystem, Apple has effectively transferred Cups to the Open Printing Project. Sweet presented on this change at this month's Open Printing Summit and acknowledged that Apple stopped actively developing Cups when he left the company. But now, he's been contracted by Apple to apply important bug fixes from the open printing fork of Cups back to the Apple Cups code for macOS. And it seems now open printing is working on a new Cups 2.4 release with AirPrint compatibility, OAuth authentication, package config support, Snap support, TLS improvements, and really a variety of other feature improvements, making Cups 2.4 effectively the new upstream of the project. And it seems even early plans are in the works for Cups 3.0, which will feature a bit of re-architecting, amongst other things. Everyone's favorite Fox learned some new tricks this week. On Tuesday, Mozilla introduced Firefox's new Site Isolation Security Architecture. In a blog post, they wrote, Site isolation builds upon a new security architecture that extends current protection mechanisms by separating web content and loading each site into its own operating system process. This new security architecture allows Firefox to completely separate code originating from different sites and, in turn, defend against malicious sites trying to access sensitive information from other sites you are visiting. Basically, here's the problem. Without site isolation, the browser will load embedded pages, whatever they might be, whether that's a bank page or an advertisement, in the same process as the top-level document. So in a more dangerous scenario, a malicious site could embed a legitimate site within a subframe and then try to trick you into entering your sensitive information. And with the current architecture, if a page contains any subframes from a different site, they will be generally in the same process as the outer tab. Yeah, and that doesn't sound very nice, very clean, does it? That's where site isolation comes in. Firefox will load each site into its own process, thereby isolating their memory from each other. And it relies on the security guarantees of your hopefully up-to-date and secure operating system. And on top of security, there, of course, are other benefits to site isolation. Poorly performing tabs won't necessarily have an impact on each other. And then there's the aspect of more cores, right? Using more processes to load websites allows Firefox to spread that work across CPU cores and take better advantage of the underlying hardware. One wonders if there'll be a battery impact, but I'm all for lighting up those cores. Mozilla is currently testing site isolation on the nightly and beta versions of the desktop browsers with a subset of users, but should be rolling out to more desktop users soon. If you can't wait, though, you can enable it now in the nightly with an about preferences tweak 
Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes with details. Well, believe it or not, it's been a month since we learned about the University of Minnesota's ban from the Linux kernel and the hypocrite commit research that they were conducting. This week, the kernel developers completed their review of all of the UMN patches. Part of that work was addressing some of the questionable and problematic patches instead of just outright rejecting them. And the work on those problematic patches should land in Linux 5.13. A rather packed pull request sent out on Thursday by Greg Croa Hartman noted, The majority here is the fallout of the umn.edu review, or re-review, of all the prior submissions. That resulted in a bunch of reverts along with the correct changes made. And there is no regression of any other potential fixes that were made by those individuals. I would like to thank the over 80 different developers who helped with the review and fixes for this mess. Going by Git activity from the umn.edu address, it looks like the kernel developers pulled 37 patches from a diverse set of subsystems, stuff like ALSA, media, networking, and more than a few others. But for a little context, that's 37 reverts out of 150 plus total patches from University of Minnesota developers over the last few years. We'll link to Michael Larble's post that goes through the patch comments and a few choice explanations he found for some of the problems with those patches. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to receive $100 in 60-day credit towards a new account. And of course, you support the show. Linode is the largest independent cloud computing provider. And no matter what skill level you're at, Linode's going to work for you. They're our hosting provider. Linode's like our secret member of our team. We get the presence and the performance and the reliability of a large enterprise company while still being a small team. It's like I outsourced all my data center stuff to Linode, and it's perfect that way. They let me focus on what JB does best, and they have a simple cloud infrastructure that's crazy fast and is built from the ground up around Linux. You know, they have been around since 2003, so they picked each thing they've done and they've focused in on it since then, and they've just really gotten good. So performance, they've they've figured that out, and they've really got fast systems. Native SSD storage, 40 gigabit connections to the hypervisor. Their dedicated CPU rigs have AMD Epic processors that just crush the competition. But their dashboard is so straightforward that even if you're not an expert at this kind of stuff, you're going to find it very approachable. And then on top of that, they have a bunch of guides and tutorials, and then the best support in the business. Additionally, they have services around that hosting like S3 compatible object storage which could really up your backup game or your config offsite game or just setting up a static website. They have cloud firewalls and simple one-click deployments of lots of common open source application stacks and so much more. So I really want to encourage you to go try out that $100 because that's a legit amount of money that you can really do something with and I could sit here and go on and on and tell you about why I've chosen to use Linode but I'd like you to go see Go to linode.com slash land, get that $100 credit, and then feel free to move in because Linode's 30 to 50% less than the big cloud over there at AWS or Google or Azure. Think about that. Better performance, an independent company who supports the Linux community and manages to be 30 to 50% less. That's pretty great. And they have 11 data centers worldwide. So you're going to find just the right spot to deploy for you or your users. And you're going to rest easy knowing that Linode has built-in monitoring tools that keep an eye on your system, and they'll send you an email if anything looks kind of funky. And that's often a heads up that something's going on, 
and you can get to it before your users even notice a problem. Go try them out at linode.com slash LAN. Linux.ting.com. If you're sick of overpaying for cell service, go see how much you could save, and then take 25 bucks off of that by visiting Linux.ting.com. Ting has their SAT 12 plan, which is a power plan. You get unlimited talk, unlimited text, and 12 gigs of data for just $35 a month. They have great family plans, too, where you can pool data and you can obviously have unlimited calls and texts there. And the other great thing about Ting is they have three networks that you can choose from. And so there is such a good chance that you can pick the one that's the best service in your area. It also means they have just a massive compatibility with phones. If you use two gigs or you use 20 gigs or whatever, there's a perfect Ting plan for you. And every single one of those plans comes with access to Ting's award-winning customer service. And of course, access to their nationwide LTE and 5G coverage, which is so handy when I'm traveling. I'll sometimes carry multiple devices because Ting's pricing is so simple and straightforward. I don't have to invest the hundreds of dollars to have some of the other carriers, but I still get access to their networks. And the beauty thing about Ting is their website. You guys know I love a dashboard for days and they've got a great one. It's simple to manage just about everything you're ever going to need to do. And I'm I think I'm going on seven years, maybe, of a, as a Ting customer now. And I've called in twice like ever. And one of them was for like an esoteric data issue on a dedicated data device. And they just hung on the line forever. Well, like two and a half hours, which is like forever in support call time. And just worked it out with me, even though at the end it wasn't really a Ting problem. I mean, I just like... I felt like I was tight with that rep by the time we were all done. It's customer service at a next level when you need it, but the website really manages everything with that dashboard. So just head to linux.ting.com to check your current phone because it's likely with their multiple network, it's gonna be supported. You create an account, you pick the plan that's just right for you, and then Ting will send you a SIM card and you just pop that in your phone, you go to the site and you finish up the activation and you're good to go. And if you went to linux.ting.com, you take a 25 bucks off whatever great price Ting's already given you. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's plans. So go to linux.ting.com and see the next generation of Ting Mobile. It's here and it's fantastic. linux.ting.com. In our discussion story this week, we wanted to cover something you've likely already heard about. The many resignations over at the long-running IRC network, Freenode. Originally started in 1995, Freenode grew to become the de facto communication and support tool for free and open-source projects of all shapes and sizes. And by 2013, had officially become the largest and most active IRC network in the world. Over the last few weeks, an organizational split has been brewing, and what's clear right now, both sides of the split are proclaiming the other side was attempting a hostile takeover. Boy, this story is is nearly impenetrable if you're coming at it from the outside. So a, a way to help think about this and understand the situation is when you consider that there's Freenode, the network, the IRC network that's made up of volunteers, some of which are fairly new in all of this and some of which have been around for a long time. And then there's Freenode Limited, the company, which owns the Freenode domain, trademark, has contributed financially in some capacities, and is owned by Andrew Lee. There are some paid people, but the bulk of what we consider, quote, Freenode staff are really just 
They're volunteers, and my impression is not many of the two groups from the Freenode Limited team and the Freenode Volunteer team ever really mixed much. There was some interactions, but with just maybe a few at the top of the volunteer team. Essentially, there were two communities within the Freenode staff. Andrew Lee of private internet access fame purchased the domain and trademarks and Freenode Limited company in 2017. But more recently, discussions over control of the Freenode DNS escalated into a series of staff resignations, with many of the staff leaving to join a recently established and competing IRC network known as LiberaChat. And with each side of the split releasing statements, chat transcripts, and even screenshots of conversations, it's been more than a little complicated to sort through and figure out just what happened here. I think it hasn't helped that one side of the conversation has been a little overrepresented, uh, and that's the Libera chat side. They were very organized in all of this. They had their letters ready to go. They linked to each other's letters and kept that updated. And of course, they had their new infrastructure waiting in the wings. And it seems there was a fight over the DNS. They wanted control of the DNS of Freenode as well. And so they may have just taken over the Freenode infrastructure had that not gotten shut down by Lee. I guess it just reminds me of that old adage that there are two sides to every story. But, you know, it's clear, whatever the full story is, there was a large group of the staff that were just unhappy uh, and they wanted some kind of change. And in my opinion, the situation just got a bit explosive when lawyers started sending letters. Uh, I think open source volunteers and, and, and this, I'm including the free node volunteers in this. They, uh, you know, they don't like it when the lawyers get involved. Things get legally vague real quick, and just getting lawyers involved could cause some volunteers to nope out and just resign right there. Yeah, there's definitely that aspect to this where it's a weird intersection between private companies and enterprise and a loose-knit group of volunteers and open-source contributors on the other side. And those two systems, well, they don't always mesh. And then there's the elephant in the room uh, that this is a fight of personalities. Um, when you look into this, there's a lot of strong, unique personalities, and they're making boisterous claims that seem really intense. And so I think there is an element of they said versus they said here, and it's it's kind of like whatever team that people are are jumping in on, they just they're just going with that line. And I think not helping the situation is Andrew Lee himself seems like kind of the type of character that people like to take shots at. He made some money from Bitcoin. There's been some you know sort of tabloid style hit pieces on him, and so it's really kind of low hanging fruit for those clickbaity, lazy writers or YouTubers that just kind of want to get an opinion out there and, and grab some clicks and views. Andrew Lee makes for a, a character that's easy to take shots at. Um, and it's an underdog story with the Libera chat folks, you know, coming up and forking and starting their own server from the ground up for open source projects. It's an underdog story that the community just loves to latch on. And I think those elements have all come together to really kind of just skew everyone's perspective on what's gone down here. Well, we're kind of used to, in the open source community, being a little skeptical of private companies or well-resourced individuals getting in and at least being perceived to change projects that we know and love. I mean, partly for good reason, but I think you're right here. There's been a huge information gap, and that means both sides 
are sort of reasonably upset. I mean, Andrew Lee sees himself as having been involved in Freenode for years, and yet here's longtime staff members on the other side saying, we don't really know who you are or think you're involved with Freenode. And I can understand both sides because it's just confusing what's going on, who's been involved, and who owns what. Yeah, and then there's the obvious sort of like, really, we're fighting for who wants to be IRC king in 2021? Because, I mean, make no mistake about it, Freenode's got to be one of the largest public IRC networks out there, right? So this is a this is a fight for IRC king in 2021 right now, which just seems ridiculous. As unfortunate as all of this is, it also kind of seems to me that Freenode was in a sort of precarious place from an organizational and governance structure already. I mean, it appears that this transaction with Freenode Limited happened way back in 2017, and yet a, a number of staff claimed not to have any idea about it. And in 2021, it seems like getting your open source set up with a foundation or nonprofit or other organizational entity is just really important if you want things to continue on in an organized fashion that is hopefully less susceptible to personality disputes like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think when you have competition like Mattermost, Discord, and like Slack, you kind of have to have your A game on already if you're IRC and you want to stick around and just sort of keep your entrenched real estate. Uh, but the reality is they didn't have that. Uh, I think maybe everybody thought things were going just fine until there was the, um, you know, this 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 brouhaha that developed this kerfuffle, <laughs> if you will. Well, and you know how it goes in open source organizations or volunteer organizations. You maintain the little bits that you do, but Unless you really want more work, you don't ask about the problems over there. But you're right. I mean, IRC is kind of yesterday's technology at this point, And there are things like Mattermost, there's proprietary things like Slack. Not to mention all the exciting work that's been happening over in the Matrix community. Yeah, I think a lot of projects will stop and use this moment to consider. Um, some projects I've already announced they're leaving Freenode. Some projects like Gen2 said, no, we're going to wait for all the facts. But I think all, everyone's kind of taken this moment to go, well, Matrix really seems like they're getting it together. And they announced Spaces recently, which put simply is a way to group rooms and people together. And it comes in a few flavors depending on what size of organization you have. But to help us understand how this could be beneficial to open source communities, and I think to also help us understand how this replaces Matrix's previous community features, I want to play a clip of audio from Matthew Hodgson. He presented at FOSDEM 2021, and he's about to describe how they're discontinuing their current Matrix Communities feature and focusing on the new spaces. What we decided to do is to burn it with fire. Introducing spaces. Matrix Batch Change 1772. So how spaces work is, again, to group together your rooms and users, but we group them in a room. So you inherit all the intrinsic capability and goodness that you get in a Matrix room. You get power levels, access control, invites, membership. You can store any kind of room state in it as metadata. You get third-party invites. get decentralized rooms. They're shared between servers. You can even bridge them into identity sources. So if you did have your big LDAP um, set of users, there probably are ways in future you could bridge that into the room in order to define the membership on the matrix side. And so that's basically the whole thesis of Spaces. We throw away the entire groups and communities API and just use the one that we already have. It supports auto-joining. So if you um, join a space, you, know, you have the ability to join the rooms within it. And more interestingly, we support nested hierarchies of rooms in Spaces. 
Wes, I think you could see how that would be just inherently beneficial to open source projects that could use a little bit of organization and spots for public members and spots for private development members. Yeah, it sounds like Matrix was a little concerned that Discord was becoming quite popular for open source projects because of some of those features and functionality. And so on one level, Spaces is here to provide that structure and compete against similar chat applications. But the other fascinating angle to Matrix is not to just view it as a platform for chat and instant messages, because with Spaces, they're now providing a decentralized hierarchical namespace with decentralized access controls for every room. And you can really think of a room as a pub subtopic like you might get on Kafka or MQTT or, or in all kinds of technologies. And that's where it might be really interesting to see what kinds of stuff will be built on top of Matrix. I mean, you've already got things like forums or blogging platforms that are built on Matrix. Spaces will take that flexibility to the next level, I think. And that would make the rooms that that would make them go across servers as well, right? So you would you could you could participate in a in a room that essentially spans multiple matrix servers. Yeah, that's one practical benefit of a decentralized hierarchical namespace is you could have a space with rooms from different servers under that one same space. Spaces could become the main backbone of the protocol, with chat rooms being mere just leaf nodes and a giant tree of collaboration was. Uh, and I kind of joke, but Matrix has serious potential here, and they have a mobile game that IRC can't natively offer, and they have that bridge. So you could bridge to your old IRC community and make the transition a little smoother, although none of these features really matter if free software projects keep picking Discord for their collaboration. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all been a little nervous about that, which is why it's so nice to see spaces out in beta, but we should probably stress that beta part we haven't yet upgraded the JB matrix, but we'll be looking to do so soon. We look forward to seeing you. Indeed we do, Wes. And we look forward to seeing you back here next week. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get every new episode. And if you're not on matrix yet, linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Be sure to catch Self-Hosted 45 this week. The founder of Home Assistant joins us and we look at the project's future, hardware devices, new standards, and more coming to the amazing Home Assistant Project, selfhosted.show slash 45. As for us, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Next week.